0: Open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 2. Have you all noticed that there's some crazy stuff happening again in the Middle East? Have you all noticed that? I want us to look at this from a biblical perspective today. And try to really get a grasp, both biblically and historically, about what is going on. And we could go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the spirit moved upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And he He created all of the different elements of our society. He He created the the trees and the herb-yielding seed and the the beasts of the sea and the beasts of the field. Then he he put a a larger sun to rule the day and a smaller one to rule the night, the sun and the moon. And then I love this line, and he made the stars also. It's just like that. He made the stars also. And of course, man lives and man fell. Adam and Eve, they took of the fruit and as the head of the human race, Adam condemned the human race to death. But God had a plan. And so he created a sacrificial system, and as Abel would bring his animal to sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord accepted his sacrifice, he would not accept Cain's sacrifice. Cain brought the fruit of his hands, the labor, the work that he had done. And so God established all the way from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 5, that salvation cannot come from the work of your hands. You can't be good enough. Getting baptized won't save you. Being, being a good person won't, won't save you. None of that will bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ and pay for your sin. Blood must be shed. Well, man continued to do evil, and so the flood came, and God destroyed the earth, and he chose to recreate mankind through Noah and his descendants. That's Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 10, he divides the land. And in, in the time of Peleg, he divided the continents. And if you look at the continents, you can almost see how they would all fit together. And God chose to divide all of those after the flood. That's an interesting thing to me. And so men all gathered together. And by Genesis chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they come down and they say, let us go down Now let's see what they're doing. And they were building a tower and the Bible says that, that nothing will be restrained from them. And as we said a few weeks ago, the, the, because man was not far removed from his initial perfect creation, Their intelligence was much higher than it is now, and there's there's no telling what they could have accomplished because the Bible says nothing could be restrained from them. And so God divides the languages, he divides the people by nations, by ethnic groups, by people groups, and he divides their tongues. And why did he do that? He did that for a specific purpose, because in division you have the opportunity to reach the individual. But in that time, when God divided the land, he chose a land for himself. He chose a region for himself. He chose a mountain for himself, and it's called Mount Zion. And he said, that is mine. He chose a people. He chose an area. And then he chose a man named Abraham and he said I, in chapter 11, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Go out of Macedonia and I want you to go into Canaan and there I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he made a promise and they had a miracle child, a child named Isaac and his, his mother when she was old, the angel came and said, I'm going to, you're going to have a son. And she laughed. The woman at my age can't have a baby. And God said to her, You laughed. And she said, I didn't laugh. And God, it's so funny, like talking to a child, you did laugh. And so when Isaac was born, she named him Laughter. And so you have Isaac is is born, and then God says, take him to Mount Moriah. Take him up on the mountain. He carried, Isaac himself carried the wood. And he said, where's the sacrifice? And he said, God will provide himself a ram. But Isaac, Abraham instructed him to lay down and be the sacrifice. And he did. He willingly laid down to become a sacrifice. Because God had told him to sacrifice his only son. And honestly, I believe that Abraham was believing that God would raise him from the dead. But he was going to obey God. And as he raised the knife, the Lord stopped his hand. And he looked over and there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Just as Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, when he died, that thorn, that, 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 that crown of thorns was placed into his head. Every bit of the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, it pictured the coming of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. As a matter of fact, the place of that sacrifice is the very place where Jesus Christ was crucified. The very geographical location. God, from the beginning, had a specific plan for a specific place and a specific people in that place. Because from those people in that place would come the one who was to be the Son of God. Who was to be the Savior of the world who was to be the seed. And so, all the way from the beginning, going all the way back to Genesis three fifteen, when when Eve ate of the fruit, and God pronounced the judgment, and he pronounced the judgment on the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And that began the battle of the seeds. And so Satan has done everything he can to destroy the people of Israel. Why? Because Jesus Christ was going to come. And we could go through all of the many times, whether it was when Moses was born and the Pharaoh said, kill all of the young men. Well, if all the young men in Israel were killed, then the the seed of Abraham couldn't come forth. And of course, God used Pharaoh's own daughter to preserve the seed and to preserve the line and Moses came forth, and it could be when they went into the promised land, and the giants were there, and Satan had mingled his seed with the seed of men, and there were giants in the land, and there was a a genetic mutation that was taking place, and God stopped that. It's just amazing, all the way through, and we could look at all of these different things, even when Jesus Christ was born, and the wise men had come, and they said, we're seeking him who's to be born king of the Jews, and so of course, Herod wanted to kill all of the babies. and God saved Jesus Christ's life. God the Father saved God the Son's life as they fled to Egypt and were protected. But we know that he came into his own and his own received him not. And so finally... Jesus Christ, when he began his ministry at 30 years old, he was completely sinless. He was completely harmless. He was completely attractive and altogether lovely, the Bible describes him. And yet, they killed him. He died on the cross, on that same spot, on Mount Moriah. And the father heard the prayer of his son, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What was he doing? He was saying they were doing it in ignorance. As we looked in our study in the book of Acts, that's repeated. They did it ignorantly. In 2 Corinthians, it says again, they did it ignorantly. They didn't know what they were doing. Why did God do that? Because then the charge is manslaughter. The charge is not murder. There is no forgiveness for murder in the Old Testament law. But for manslaughter... In and, and the illustration that the Bible uses, if a man is swinging his axe and the axe head falls off and kills his neighbor, then that man can run along a specific path to a city of refuge. Because the Bible, before the law and after the law, this law has never gone away. For the shedding of blood, blood must be shed. And it, began, it became that man's responsibility to avenge his family member. And so even though it was an accident the family was still to avenge that death. If he went to the city of refuge, he could stay there safely and he could be there until the death of the high priest and the next high priest king. He had safety, but the penalty for manslaughter was you lost your home. You lost everything that was there. You had to stay in the city of refuge. So when Pilate, said, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. When Jesus was declared innocent, because as politicians do, they don't necessarily do what's right or what they even believe. They do what's expedient. And so for expedience, Pilate crucified Jesus Christ to appease the Jews. And they became, the Jewish people became guilty of manslaughter. And so 40 years later, what happened? God destroyed their city. And they were removed from their land. Because the penalty for manslaughter is you lose your home. But you can go to a city of refuge. And so the diaspora started and the Jews fled all over the world. And from that time on, there were aliens in the world. And the way they were treated, they'd been treated horribly throughout all of history. Until finally there came something called the Zionist movement. There was a man named Ernst uh, uh, Herschel Herzl. And what he wanted to do, he was a Hungarian Jew, and he had watched what was the Dreyfus affair. And here was a man; he was a Jewish businessman in France, and he was falsely accused and falsely uh, convicted and sent to Devil's Island to suffer. And so the Jews of the world, the Jewish business leaders of the world, who had become prosperous and powerful, they told France, you had better bring him back from Devil's Island. You had better retry him in a fair trial and show that he's innocent and restore everything. And do you know what France did? They did that. Because the Jews had become so powerful politically, that they were able to push it, and yet the individual Jewish people were still struggling and suffering pogrom after pogrom. The, 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 uh, the pogroms were uh, were governmental and religious oppression against the Jewish people, and so Zionism. It was led by Herschel at Herzl, and what he was wanting to do was he saw the Dreyfus affair and he saw the miserable state of the Jews, and and so he started leading back to Zion. Let's go back. Zion, you've got your Bibles in Zechariah too. Open your Bibles to hold your place there and go to Isaiah chapter thirty-five. It was Theodore, not Ernst Theodore Herzl, but Isaiah chapter thirty-five and look at verse ten. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Zion, it is a specific mountain in a specific place in a specific nation given to a specific people by the one true God. And the Bible says they will come back to that place and it's an amazing thing that a nation that was no longer a nation could become a nation again. It's never happened in human, all of human history. And the Zionist movement is what led to that. I have this book. It's called Signs of the Times by I.M. Haldeman. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in New York City. This book was written in 1910, and he has a chapter called the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement. And he described what has happened to the people of Israel. He said, for 2000, let me start here. For 2000 years they have been a nation of sorrows and experts in grief. As a nation they crucified their king and the nations have crucified them. For two thousand years, their history has been written in blood and tears. They have been rejected and despised of men. In the hall of the Sanhedrin, in the barracks of Herod, before Pontius Pilate, on the way to Calvary, and at last on the cross, Jesus was mocked, jibed at, and spurned. For two thousand years, the Jews have been the butt, the jibe, the mockery, the scorn, and the contempt of the Gentile world. They have been more than laughed at, more than mocked. They have been the objects of persecution unparalleled. They have been whipped, beaten with rods, stoned, imprisoned, robbed, and burned alive. The men have been enslaved and the women ruthlessly ravished and the children destroyed. They have been thrown into wells, sent to sea in rotten ships, flayed alive, tortured, hunted as wild beasts are hunted, and their lives prolonged in agony till death has become a benediction." For centuries, centuries, whoever robbed and killed a Jew felt that he did God's service. But God would never allow that to stand. Any nation that has ever come against God's people, God has destroyed that nation. In the late 1800s, when, when King Philip of Spain was doing his pogroms again and persecuting mercilessly the Jews, even in the late 1800s, God actually took away his possessions, the Philippine Islands, who were named after him, that were named after him. God has done that. The, the Roman Empire that controlled the entire world. If you go to Italy now, it's just a tiny little place. It's nothing but a memory of what they were and how they treated God's people. And I don't have time to go into the history of it, but how, why has God blessed the United States of America? Because the first place the Jews ever found liberty and freedom was in a little colony called Rhode Island, and the first synagogue in America, the Toro Synagogue, was built in the 1700s. And you can go there today, and on the platform of that synagogue is a trap door with a tunnel that leads out because they couldn't even believe that they actually finally had a place where they could worship freely. And so in the United States, because of our pluralistic society and our, and our separation of church and state and our granting of religious liberty, we've allowed the Jews to live and to prosper. And yet in the rest of the world, they were persecuted mercilessly. Before World War II, when they were trying to flee Russia and come to England, Winston Churchill sent them back out on the ships and said, no, we will not take them. And as a result, many of them went back and died in the concentration camps in Germany. And so, it used to be said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. How powerful is the British Empire now? They're nothing but a vassal state to the United States of America. Why does God bless us? We're not a righteous nation. We're, we're clearly a wicked nation. Look at our leaders. Why would God help us? Because we are a friend to Israel. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. When we look at what's going on in the nation of Israel, and at the, again, from that Zionist movement, they made their way back into the land. And this is, this is an amazing thing. Haldeman in his book is talking about the need for a Jewish state. He said this. He said, they have been a nation out of place. Remember, this is written in 1910. Let a man stand in a crowd and be neither going nor coming. He will soon be jostled and pushed, whirled and turned about, and more or less maltreated because he is out of place. He is in everybody's way. Just so, the Jew Everywhere else than in Palestine and in national relationship is out of place. He is in everybody's way and has been elbowed and jostled, world about, hurt, and maltreated by the thronging nations. Suppose, however, the Jews were today in their own land. This is before it happened. This is 1910. They didn't become a nation until 1948, 1947. Suppose, however, the Jews were today in their own land. Suppose they had an up-to-date army of 500,000 perfectly equipped men and a navy of dreadnoughts to match an exchequer that's a bank full of convertible values. Let it be supposed that Jerusalem was, as it may, as it well may be, a great railway and commercial center and that in it, was the concentrated wealth of modern Jewry and all the Gentile wealth that is dependent upon it. Does anyone imagine for a moment that the nation of Gentiles would turn upon, despise, or maltreat them? You know what we know now? Yeah. They will. And the main group of people that want to destroy the Jews are the Muslims, Islam. And the, you have to understand what's going on in that land. But let's step back for a second. Imagine if you were the people living in the land when Israel came back. And I'm going to go through a little bit of the history of, of, of the two-state solution and all of that. But still, imagine if you were the group of people that were displaced when Israel, when the Jews, came back into the land. Would that make you happy? Now, of course, that is the history of the world. So whether it was the Native Americans that were here or it's the the people groups that have been conquered by every other people group, whether it's William the Conqueror coming in and the Norman Conquest of England. So you had a a French conquest of the British people and it completely changed the people. Most of us descend from that blending of that conquest. People groups overcome other people groups and then they amalgamate and they become a new people group. That is the history of the world. Amen. Amen. Except for the Jews. The Jews have maintained their unique race, their unique identity. And so, the root of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is when the Jews went back to the land that God had promised them. Look at Genesis. Keep Zechariah. We'll get there. Look at Genesis chapter 17. And look at verse 8. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, and look at what it says, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It belongs to God, and God has given it to his people for an everlasting possession, Even though he drove them out of it, it's still his and it's still theirs. That's what the Bible says. Uh, Let me just, okay. All right, I know this is hard. Anderson, how long is everlasting? It's forever. It's forever. It belongs to them. That's what the Bible says. And so now, what about... A two-state solution. How many of you have heard that phrase, a two-state solution? Have you heard that? And the idea is that if only Israel would give up some land to the Palestinians, there could be peace. That's the way that it's constantly expressed in the media. Would you all agree with that? Did you know that Israel has offered a two-state solution to the Palestinians five times? I'm going to go through that for you right now. The five times that the Palestinians have been offered a two-state solution. But let me do this before before we go there. I want you to do a a mental exercise. And it's always good to change places with the other side. To see whether or not you're being fair-minded. And I think this was from Dennis Prager. He said this. The best way to look at the Arab-Israeli conflict is if Israel said, in order for there to be peace, we will lay down our arms. We will not fight and we'll open our borders. If Israel were to, would to, do, were to do that, there would be the greatest mass genocide of the, of the, in history every man, woman, and child would be murdered immediately. How many of you know that that's true? If the Palestinians said, we're going to lay down our arms, we want peace, do you know what there would be? There would be peace. Let me give you a little tell you this story. After the breakup of the Ottoman Empire following World War I, so remember 1453, the Ottoman Turks conquer the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, Turkey, all of that area. And then for the next 500 years, this Ottoman Empire rules. That collapsed because they united with the wrong side in World War I. So, toward the end of World War I, after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, Britain took control of the Middle East, including the area that constitutes modern Israel. Seventeen years later, in 1936, the Arabs rebelled against the British and against their Jewish neighbors. The British formed a task force called the Peel Commission to study the cause of the rebellion. The commission concluded that the reason for the violence was that two peoples, Jews and Arabs, wanted to govern the same land. The answer, the Peel Commission concluded, would be to create two independent states, one for the Jews and one for the Arabs, a two-state solution. The suggested split was heavily in favor of the Arabs. Listen to this. The British offered the Arabs 80% of the disputed territories, the Jews the remaining 20%. Yet despite the tiny size of their proposed state, the Jews voted to accept this offer, but the Arabs rejected it and resumed their violent rebellion. That's rejection number one. Ten years later, in 1947, the British asked the United Nations to find a solution to the continuing tensions. Like the Peel Commission, the UN decided the best way to resolve the conflict was to divide the land. On no- November 7, 1947, the, this is from a guy named David Brog. He wrote this. On November 7, 1947, the UN voted to create two states. Again, the Jews accepted the offer. Did you hear that? And again, the Arabs rejected it. Only this time, they did so by launching an all-out war. Rejection number two. And so Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria joined the conflict, but they failed. Israel won the war and got on with the business of building a new nation. Most of the land set aside by the UN for an Arab state, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem became occupied territory. But it wasn't occupied by Israel, it was occupied by Jordan. 20 years later, in 1967, the Arabs, this time led by Egypt and joined by Syria and Jordan, once again sought to destroy the Jewish state. The 1967 conflict, known as the Six-Day War, ended in a stunning victory for Israel, Jerusalem and the West Bank, as well as the area known as the Gaza Strip. It fell into Israel's hands. The government split over what to do with this new territory. Half wanted to return the West Bank to Jordan and Gaza to Egypt in exchange for peace. The other half wanted to give it to the the region's Arabs, who had begun referring to themselves as the Palestinians, in hope that they would ultimately build their own state there. Neither initiative got very far. A few months later, the Arab League met in Sudan and issued, listen, its infamous three no's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel. Again, a two-state solution was dismissed by the Arabs, making this rejection number three. In the year 2000, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak met at Camp David with Palestinian Liberation Organization Chairman Yasser Arafat to conclude a new two-state plan. Barak offered Arafat, a Palestinian state, in all of Gaza and 94% of the West Bank, with East Jerusalem as its capital, but the Palestinian leader rejected the offer. In the words of U.S. President Bill Clinton, Arafat was, quote, here 14 days and said no to everything. Instead, the Palestinians launched a bloody wave of suicide bombings that killed over 1,000 Israelis and maimed thousands more on buses, in wedding halls, and pizza parlors. Rejection number four. In 2008, Israel tried again. Prime Minister Ehud Omer went even further than Ehud Barak had, expanding the peace offer to include additional land to sweeten the deal, Like his predecessor, the new Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, turned the deal down, rejection number five. In between the last two Israeli offers, Israel unilaterally left Gaza, giving the Palestinians complete control there. Instead of developing this territory for the good of its citizens, the Palestinians turned Gaza into a terrorist base from which they have fired thousands of rockets into Israel. Each time, Israel has agreed to a Palestinian state The Palestinians have rejected the offer, often violently. So this whole idea of a two-state solution and how Israel is the oppressor of the Palestinians, it's just a lie. Now, let let me... uh, Are we honest here? Israel is a liberal cesspool. Any type of evil teaching has its center... In Israel. Often the way they have treated Palestinian people has been horrible. Amen? And yet, God tells us to be the friend of Israel, and so we are the friend of Israel as a nation and as a people here at Grace Baptist Church. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But this whole idea. All of this nonsense that the reason for all of this conflict is because of Jewish occupation. No, the reason for the struggle is because Jews are alive. That's the problem. Think about it this way. Again, when England was in charge of that part of the world... There were wars that were happening in India. You had Muslim people fighting against Hindu people. And so they created a nation that had never existed before called Pakistan. And they displaced about 750,000 Hindu people. They removed 750,000 Hindu people from that region and gave it to the Muslim people. No one denies Pakistan's right to exist as a nation. Why do nations, entire nations, entire nation states, even people in our Congress, why do they deny Israel's right to exist? It's not their problem with Israel. It's they hate the Jews. They want the absolute death and destruction of the Jewish people. It truly is anti-Semitism. That's the root of it. And so now our question is, so we, we understand that, that, that it's God's land, and he's given it to the people. Look at Zechariah chapter 2. You know it's going to be a doozy up here when I've got to have two Bibles, right? Okay, Zechariah chapter 2. Look at verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. Talking about Israel, the Jews. For he that toucheth you, toucheth the apple of his eye. Israel is the apple of God's eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Remember the Zionist movement? For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And look at what it says. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion, Of the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. What is that talking about? One day, Jesus Christ, who right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, that's his holy habitation, he's going to raise up and he's going to return with his hosts to make war with all of those nations that have come come against Israel. That's what's coming. The Bible says so much about that. There are more than 75 specific promises about Zion in the Bible. That's the centerpiece of God's promise. So here's the question. Why won't the Jews believe? Why won't the Jews accept the message and the offer of Jesus Christ? Why do they refuse? Let's get two passages. Go to Isaiah 53 and Romans chapter 11. Isaiah 53 and Romans 11. And we're going to start at Romans 11. So remember, if you will, what's going on in the book of Romans. The first eight chapters are all about how God has provided salvation. We are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. We we all need Jesus Christ, Romans 5. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's all about how are Gentiles saved? How do they get saved? How do Jews get saved? They get saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. And we all we're all waiting for the return of Christ. Look at Romans chapter eight. This ends the first section. Chapters one through eight is the first section. Look at verse 24. Romans eight and verse twenty four. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen, but that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So we don't see Jesus, but we believe in him. We trust in him. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Look at what it says in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That's talking about Jesus. You can't say anything about Jesus. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing statement. So that's those first chapters. Chapters 12 through the end of the book are the therefore. Chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And then it tells us how we should live because of it. But there's a parenthesis in the middle of the book. It's chapters 9 through 11. And it's, it's, it's a cry of the people of Israel. These Jews, they've come to Christ, they're believing in Jesus, but what about all the national promises? What about the promise of Zion, of that place, of that hill, of that government, of those people, of the Messiah? What about that? Has God cast away his people? Is God done with Israel? Let's see what the Bible says. Look at chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Oh, you know what? That's fine. Chapter 11. I say then, have God cast away his people? God forbid. Now, this is so fun. I had somebody challenge me about the King James Bible because God forbid, when you look at the Greek words, it's basically let it not be so. So why would they put God forbid? Because colloquially, when you say let it not be so, in that Greek, that's the strongest statement that you can make. So when I say, "Eh, let it not be so, that doesn't mean anything. When I say, God forbid, that's the strongest statement that I can make. And so that's the expression of the text. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid! And look at Paul's prayer for them, chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Look at chapter 11 again. Look at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. He elected them. He has chosen Israel as his people. Verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He's not changed his mind about Israel. They are still his. Why do they reject him? So get Isaiah chapter 53 and get 2 Thessalonians. All right, put your ribbon in 2 Thessalonians. And in a minute, we're going to compare Isaiah 53 and 2 Thessalonians. But let's go to Isaiah 53. This is a message I saw a video of an evangelist in Israel reading people Isaiah 53, reading Jews Isaiah 53. And even though they love the Old Testament, they love it. They're trained in it. They've never heard this. Isaiah 53 is hidden from them. Look at Isaiah 53. And remember, can you all look up at me just for a second? This was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. 700 years. And look how specific and exact it is. Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Who is this speaking of? Look at chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who is this that's being spoken of? The one whose visage has been marred more than any man. How many of you remember... When Jesus Christ was risen and he's walking on the Emmaus Road and some of his disciples see him and he speaks with them and he said, why are you so sad? And they said, because of the things that have happened in Jerusalem. And they said, what thing? And Jesus said, what things? They didn't recognize him. But when he got to their place, he was going to go on, and they asked him to eat with him. As in, and as he stood and broke the bread and prayed for them, they recognized that it was Jesus. Why hadn't they recognized him before? Because the Bible says he gave his cheeks to the smiters. They had ripped his beard out. His face was gone. His visage was marred more than any man. They, they, they had shredded his flesh with the cat of nine tails. They had driven the, 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 the crown of thorns into his head. They had pierced his nails. They had pierced his hands and feet with nails. He didn't look like the same person. His visage was marred more than any man. And when people saw him, the Bible says that they're astounded. Now, that's an old word. We don't use that anymore. Sometimes it's changed to astonished. And it does have a similar meaning, except the root word was a French word that means turned to stone. They're frozen in place by what was done to Jesus. And then it describes how it happened. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. Notice what it says. Who hath believed our report? And the Apostle Paul quotes that in Romans 10 about Israel and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. So Jesus Christ came as the strong arm of the Lord to bring salvation, to conquer their enemies. But they rejected him. They were not, he was not believed. Verse 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is the way he looked to to the Father. Out of dry ground, out of this, this miserable priesthood, out of this miserable Judaism that was rejecting the Messiah, out of that would Jesus Christ come. Then look at what it says. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. But Psalm 45, two says he's fairer than the children of men. Remember, Jesus Christ was the perfect man. He had no sin in him. He was probably the most handsome man to ever live. He was probably about 5'8". He, he was probably the most ha- handsome man that ever lived. It, he was winsome. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. When Jesus Christ walked into the synagogue, they wanted him to read it. And when he read it, they couldn't believe the beauty of his voice. Until he said he had fulfilled it, then they wanted to kill him. And so even though he was altogether lovely, even though he was fairer than all the the people, than every other man, even though he was completely harmless and undefiled, When he made the offer, some followed, most did not. And those that saw his absolute beauty and righteousness hated him for it. That's what this is talking about. Then, look at what it says, verse 3. He is despised. Oh, by the way, it's so fun. From the father's perspective, verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. That's from God's perspective. From man's perspective, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he's despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Remember what happens when he returns? And they cried, God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause thy face to shine upon us. Isaiah, or Psalm 67. Here, when he came, they hid their faces from him. We don't want to look at you. We don't want to look at you. Verse 4. This is amazing. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. When Jesus Christ was being crucified, you know what the Jews thought? That's what God wanted. That's how we esteemed him. Smitten of God. They hated him. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. The Bible says in Colossians 1 and verse 20. That when Jesus Christ was on the cross. That he took the things that were written against us, the enmity against God, the, those, the handwriting that was written against us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's how he bore our sorrows. But I want you to see verse 6. Verse 6 is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Look at the first word. What's the first word of verse 6? What's the last word of verse 6? So look at what it says. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's all of humanity. All of humanity is sinful. But look at the next line. We have turned everyone to his own way. Yes, all of humanity is sinful, but each and every one of you, each and every one of us have chosen to be sinners. We're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice. That's the clear teaching of Isaiah three six. all we have like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But look at this. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. So as he's bounced around from prison to trial hall, to trial hall, to, to be beaten and then crucified, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before he, her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Who shall declare his generation? Who, who declared his generation? Pilate! There's, there's no fault in him. Pilate's wife don't have anything to do with this man. The thief on the cross. Why would you mock him? His generation was declared even by the supposed enemies of God while the people of God turned against him. Verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. See, they want, they, they crucified him with the wicked. They wanted to throw him in the trash heap with the rest of the wicked. But the people of God put him in the tomb of a rich man. 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Look at this. He made made his soul an offering for sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross. But when his soul was made an offering for sin, was when he cried to the Father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? me?" And in Christ's very soul, he was separated from the Father and had to bear the sin of our iniquity. Bear the penalty of it. And yet, look at what it says. Here's the resurrection. Here's the resurrection. Yet it pleased the Lord, verse 10, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And look at what the father saw. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. Why do the Jews reject that? As you read that and you see what Jesus Christ did, how many of you can see Jesus in Isaiah 53? Why do the Jews reject it? We saw in Romans chapter 11 it says that blindness in part has happened to the Jews because they have received the spirit of antichrist. What is the spirit of antichrist? All right, get keep your place in Isaiah 53. You know what? I'll just read it to you because you have 2 Thessalonians. Let me read 1 John to you. We read it in our Sunday school hour. What is the spirit of antichrist? 1 John chapter 2. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is the Messiah. Christ is Messiah. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And I want you to see this. So Michael Scott, our friend, he wrote a book called He Opened the Book and He Closed the Book. And, And so Isaiah is called the Bible in Miniature. Because there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. There are 66 books of the Bible. Each chapter correlates to that book in the Bible. Isaiah 53 agrees with the 53rd book of your Bible, which is 2 Thessalonians. And I want you to see this. So in one hand, I want you to have Isaiah 53. In the next hand, I want you to have 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse one. So we're Isaiah fifty three and Second Thessalonians chapter two. Everybody there? You're gonna to want to see it. It's unbelievable. Why do they reject? And who are they going to accept? All right. Isaiah fifty three and verse one. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 11. And for this cause shall God send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. You see, after the rapture, when Jesus Christ comes back, the Antichrist rises up. And these Jewish people accept the Antichrist. That's what happens. And they believe a lie. All right, so... Look at, look at what it says. Isaiah 53, who hath believed our report? Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.11, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion. Go back to Isaiah 53, look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Look at what Antichrist does. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. He's the man of sin, the son of perdition, at the end of verse 3, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that as God he sitteth in the temple, showing himself that he is God. They hide their faces from the genuine Messiah and worship the Antichrist. Back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. See, the temple where the, the, the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies, was, where the mercy seat of God was, that's where the blood was sprinkled. So that when the broken tablets of the law that were in the the, the the ark, when God the Father, who was there, when he saw it, he saw the broken law through the blood of his Son. That's our sacrifice. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. And now they're worshiping the Antichrist who's sitting in the, in the rebuilt temple where God is to be worshiped, and they're worshiping him. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Isaiah fifty-three, verse six: All we like sheep have gone astray; we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second Thessalonians two, look at verse ten. So look at verse nine, I'm sorry, verse eight. And then shall that wicked—see, it's capitalized—talking about Antichrist. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And look at verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray and turned every one to his own way. Go back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked. The Bible and 2 Thessalonians, that wicked will be revealed, and that's who they turn to. Middle of verse 9 in Isaiah 53, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 9. Even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and lying wonders. There's no deceit in Jesus' mouth, but Satan's full of lying wonders. Back to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of his calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That's what has been offered, but they follow the lying wonders and power of the Antichrist. Go back to Isaiah 53, look at verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for she shall bear their iniquities. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We behold the righteousness of God in Isaiah 53. Here, they're having pleasure in unrighteousness. It's unbelievable. Why do they reject Jesus? Because they have the spirit of Antichrist. And yet, let's finish With Romans chapter 11. Verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them. When I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sakes. I wonder if you're here today. And we're done. Almost. Almost. I wonder if you're here today. Are you an enemy of the gospel? What is the gospel? It makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is what saves us. And that's the death, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And how that he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians said, there'll be some that come and preach another gospel, which is not another. There's only one gospel. It's so a death, burial, and resurrection and would pervert the truth of God. Some there, there are people in this room, I would imagine, and you think that the gospel is not enough. Your gospel is you must be good. You must be faithful. You've got to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this because you do not believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough to save you. You know what that makes you? An enemy of the gospel. That's what the Jews are right now. They're enemies. That doesn't mean Jews don't get saved. Individual Jews do. As a people group, they are the enemies of the gospel. For this is my covenant unto them, verse 27, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they're beloved for the Father's sake. Enemies of the gospel, but God loves them. And you know what? God loves you too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's God's desire for Israel? That they'd be saved. What's God's desire for you? That you would be saved. I will finish with this. In Acts chapter 6, the church had grown, and, and there, there was too much work for the leaders to do. So they said, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom who we can appoint over this business. And what was the business? Some of the old ladies weren't being treated well. The, 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 as things were being handed out to help them, They weren't getting enough. And so people were complaining. And so the pastor said, it's not reason that we should leave the word of God and prayer to serve tables. So they appointed deacons and men in the church went and did that. And so the Bible says, and the saying pleased the whole people. And so when God's church was functioning the way God wanted it to, the preacher studying the word and preaching the word, whether in their church or around, that's God's plan. That's God's plan for the preacher. And then in the men in the church, take care of the needs of the church. How many of you know that's God's plan? And here's what happened. And many priests were led to the faith. When God's people do God's work, God's way, religious people come to Christ. You know, we live in a community with a lot of religious people, and they're trusting their religion to take them to heaven. They think their baptism will save us, will save them. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 16? Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What does that mean? That means baptism is not a part of the gospel. There are religious people that believe their baptism will take them to heaven when the only thing that will take you to heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. There are many Baptists that will never go to heaven because they think their membership in a Baptist church is enough to save them. That will never save anyone. The only thing that will save us is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Are you a friend of the gospel or an enemy of the gospel? Do you trust your religion more than you trust the word of God? Because the Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us. Have you trusted Christ as your savior? Are you praying for the peace of Jerusalem? They are God's people. And the people that are against them are not against the nation. They hate the Jews. But they're God's people. They're the apple of his eye. Am Haldeman said that the fact that the people are going back to Israel, this is in 1910, he said this, This is the deeper meaning of Zionism. Every footstep Zionward, every face face set thitherward, every accent and song that repeats the name of Zion should be a warning and an exhortation to the church, to the individual Christian to watch, to wait, and with uplifted foot on the threshold of any circumstance be ready as though the master had already said, come up." Hither. For ye know not the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. He could come back today. That's what all of this is telling us. And if he did, have you trusted Christ or are you one of those who's an enemy of the gospel? I hope you'll place your faith and trust in him. And let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground in history and scripture, we've tried to emphasize your gospel. It's not my gospel, it's your gospel. And Lord, these are your people.